Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, one of England's most engaged and provocative writers, Martin Amos. His 2014 novel, The Zone of Interest, focused on the Holocaust from a different angle. Its screen adaptation is nominated for five Oscars. Martin Amos had a kind of rock star reputation in the English literary world. Whatever he did became news, quite apart from his writing. At the same time, he was hailed as the cleverest and most entertaining writer of his generation. He wrote his first novel when he was only 24, a couple of years after getting a first-class degree from Oxford. His early books were raucous novels about adolescent sex, drugs, and communal living. Then he took on class, nuclear weapons, and environmental collapse. And in 1991, he wrote Time's Arrow, a slender yet ambitious book tracing the life of a Nazi doctor backwards through the 20th century, reversing Time's Arrow. It's intense, inexorable, and dark. Soon afterwards, he came back with renewed ebullience, a big comic novel called The Information, about literary envy and the male midlife crisis. But Martin Amos was a satirist, which meant he was serious about his laughter. He also became more frontally serious about his subjects, writing about his obsession with the terrors of the Soviet Union under Stalin, first in a nonfiction book, Koba the Dread, subtitled Laughter and the Twenty Million, and then in a novel about the Gulag called House of Meetings. In 2014, he returned to his other dark subject, the world of the Nazi Holocaust in the zone of interest. The movie adaptation had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival last May, where it won the Grand Prix and the International Film Critics' Fipreski Prize. It was named one of the top five international films of 2023 and nominated for many awards, including five Oscars at this week's Academy Awards. Martin Amos died last year. He was 73. I spoke to him half a dozen times over the years. Here's our conversation about the zone of interest from the CBC's New York studio in 2014. When we first spoke more than 20 years ago, it was about your book, Time's Arrow, which recounts the experience of a Nazi doctor. Why did you want to return to the subject of the Holocaust in your new novel, The Zone of Interest? Well, you don't decide. You you take the promptings of the unconscious, is what you do. An idea for a work of fiction will come at you like a sort of shimmer, like a frisson. And you you sit up and you think, I can write a novel. And uh, what came to me, the Donnet, was uh, the idea of a sort of love at first sight moment with this uh, horribly anomalous background which was a concentration camp, never named, but um, is obviously Auschwitz. And from there, I mean, you it's, it's, it's such a demanding undertaking in terms of, I mean, I can see just in the acknowledgments at the end of the novel, you know, shelf loads of books and, and just 
to reimagine yourself in that world. Yes. Well, it wasn't so difficult to write as Time's Arrow because um, I did all my suffering then, really. You have to sort of earn the novel. And the more terrifying the subject, then the more the earning process goes on. But I'd done the most of the emotional work way back then and continued to do it because I, I've never left the subject alone and um, I, I haven't left it alone since finishing this book either. Why do you think that is? It's that remark of Michael Andre Bernstein, poet and academic uh, and novelist. He said uh, that our understanding of this genocide is central to our self-understanding. And that is why it's a never-ending process. The other thing, of course, is that no one understands Hitler. An amazing fact by itself that um, no historian claims to be baffled by Stalin. Stalin is very assimilable. He makes sense in a way that Hitler doesn't begin to do. And there's not one historian who claims that he isn't baffled by Hitler. So, and no one knows why he did it, what, what his motive was. You know, huge questions that have no chance, I think, of being answered now. So that allows the novelist or the poet, as well as the historian, to keep on exploring it. And do you think that's the case when you say understanding that genocide is central to our self-understanding? Yes. I mean, not everyone's going to feel that way, although I love the casual aside from W.G. Sebold, who said that no serious person ever thinks about anything else. Um, I mean, we do think about other things, but uh, it's, it's always there. Well, he was German and he was born in 1944, so I think it might be another reason that Sebold felt haunted by that subject. Well, um, I know quite a few people who are, you know, they're friends, close friends, who... Um, their minds can't leave it alone. When you talk about an understanding, it seems that that is something that's, uh, that eludes us when it comes to the, the Holocaust. Yes, well, what sort of liberated me, I think, was reading some remarks by Primo Levi, who is the great uh, visionary of the, of the whole phenomenon. And he was asked, how, how do you explain the, the Nazi hatred and he says, well, he lists the usual reasons that historians give and says, but he finds these explanations not commensurate with the facts that need explaining. And then he says, um, perhaps we, we must not understand it because to understand something is to contain it and to include it within yourself and almost to identify with people who can't be identified with. And he said, this should give us comfort because it shows that the whole, the, the hatred was anti-human, even counter-human, he said. It is a hatred that is not in us. It is outside man. And what he does there is remove the pressure to understand. And uh, I found, I, I almost sort of cried out with relief and a, a kind of epiphany when I read those words. And then I felt able, more able to, to go in there myself. But when you, when you, you quote Michael-Andre Bernstein with the idea of it's being central to our self-understanding, what has that enabled you to understand about yourself? 
Well, I was struggling with trying to penetrate it, and, and I reread a book, The Holocaust, Martin Gilbert, that I'd read before I wrote Time's Arrow in the late 80s. And I was almost making the same marks in the margin that I'd done the first time round. And I, and I just couldn't see what they thought they were doing. And uh, I was sort of cursing myself for, for not having made any progress whatever about it. But I think that's that defines the singularity, the exceptionalism of the Holocaust, is that it is so impenetrable. And uh, a friend of mine, Clive James, the writer Clive James, says that, uh, you know, we struggle with this question, but you feel it's, it's the best part of you that's struggling with it. And, I mean, obviously there have been many mass killings in the 20th century from Cambodia to Rwanda. And you yourself have written about uh, the Soviet gulag and, and Stalin's de, sort of de facto mass murders of... Uh, through famine and executions and, and trials and so on. And slavery. I mean, that the gulag was a slave system. And yet what makes this the German, this uh, Nazi exceptionalism is, is its unfathomableness? You think the others are more explicable? Well, the, um, that's one of the elements. It's unfathomable, but it, it also sprang out of the heart of Europe. We have to accept that Germany was the best educated nation that ever been when Hitler took power. So that's certainly an element of the singularity. Another one is is how incredibly uh, hypocritical and disgusting and shot through with deception the whole project was. The deception right up to the moment of killing where the commandant would greet the new deportees by saying, you know, you're here to work, I'm not going to deceive you, you're going to be working the farms, uh, the food is plain but plentiful, and we're going to have a light disinfection now after your difficult journey. And any diabetics and those with uh, special dietary needs, please contact Dr. Bodman at the Traveler's Lodge after supper. And they were all, the whole transport would be dead in an hour. The, the lying and the greed and uh, defaces the Nazi project in a way that the other great killings of the century aren't tarred with that brush. Your novel, The Zone of Interest, is largely written from the perspective of two German officers, and, and one of them is the commander of the camp, Paul Dahl, and he oversees the arrival of the prisoners, and, and as you say, he tells them all sorts of things that aren't the case at all. Um, could you read from, from the novel? It's in Dahl's voice, and he begins by addressing newly arrived prisoners from Paris who've actually come on a passenger train rather than a cattle car. And just as a word of explanation, the term KL refers to concentrations, lager, or concentration camp. Sure. I reached for the loud hailer and said, greetings one and all. Now, I'm not going to lead you up the garden path. You're here to recuperate, and then it's off to the farms with you, where there'll be honest work for honest board. We won't be asking too much of that little young'un, you there in the sailor suit, or of you, sir, in your fine astrakhan coat, each to his or her talents and abilities. Fair enough? Very well. First, we shall escort you to the sauna for a warm shower before you settle in your rooms. It's just a short drive through the birchwood, Leave your suitcases here, please. You can pick them up at the guest house. 
tea and cheese sandwiches will be served immediately, and later there'll be piping hot stew onwards. Here it came, that wretched, that accursed lorry, the size of a furniture van, yet decidedly uncouth, positively thuggish in aspect, its springs creaking and its exhaust pipe rowdily backfiring, barnacled in rust, the green tarpaulin palpitating, the profile driver with the stub of a cigarette in his mouth and his tattooed arm dangling from the window of his cab. Violently it braked, skidded, jolting to a halt as it crossed the rails, its wheels whining for purchase. Now it slumped sickeningly to the left, and the neat side flap billowed skyward, and there, for two or three stark seconds, its cargo stood revealed. It was a sight no less familiar to me than spring rain or autumn leaves, nothing more than the day's natural wastage from KL1 on its way to KL2. But of course our Parisians let out a great whimpering howl. The utter breakdown of the transport was but a breath away. Now you don't go far in the protective custody business if you can't think on your feet and show a bit of presence of mind. Many another commandant, I dare say, would have let the situation at once degenerate into something decidedly unpleasant. Paul Dole, however, happens to be of a rather different stamp. With one wordless motion, I gave the order. Not to my men-at-arms, no, to my musicians. The brief transitional interlude was very hard indeed, I admit, as the first strains of the violins could do no more than duplicate and reinforce that helpless, quavering cry. But then the mel melody took hold, the filthy truck with its flapping tarps, lurched free of the crossing and bowled off down the crescent road and was soon lost to sight. And on we strolled. It was just as I had instinctively sensed. Our guests were utterly incapable of absorbing what they had seen. Our Parisians, what knew they of ghetto, of pogrom, of razzia? What knew they of the noble fury of the folk? We all of us walked on as if on tiptoe, Yes, we tiptoed through the birchwood, past trunks of hoary grey. The peeling birch bark, the little brown bar, with its picket fence and potted geraniums and marigolds. The undressing room, the chamber. I turned on my heel with a flourish. The instant Proofer gave his signal, and I knew the doors were all screwed shut. Martin Amos reading from his novel, The Zone of Interest. Commandant Dahl gives no sign of uh, guilt or compassion throughout most of the novel. And how does he see his behavior and his beliefs about the war and, and the human beings whose lives he controls? Well, I mean, he, uh, they all had a head full of um, eugenics and uh, racial rubbish. And it was, you know, it was, eugenics was taken very seriously and acted upon in America in the interwar period and earlier. And it was pseudoscientific garbage since wholly discredited. So they had that sort of underpinning, you couldn't even call it an ideology, a confirmation of prejudice, they had that. You know, when Dole sees issues of Der Sturmer, the illiterate hate sheets run by Julius Streicher, the child-molesting gauleteer of Franconia, he very much disapproves. He says this gives serious anti-Semitism a bad name. 
so they thought it was intellectually respectable what they were doing, even though Goebbels admitted that it's pretty barbaric, the method they're using. And, you know, once you start, once the value of human life has collapsed in your moral universe, then uh, beware, because um, it's not so much the collapse of life as the glorification of death, and death became the rallying cry for this type. So he justifies himself with euphemisms and uh, tautologies, and his whole narrative is meant to be horrific as prose as well. He has awful habits of genteelisms and elegant variation and even grammar. His mind is a mess. We've just seen that uh, the character of Eichmann has been reassessed. Hannah Arendt, in her brilliant book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, was perhaps the worst court reporter of all time because she completely accepted his his self-projection as someone who was a, just a, a mindless bureaucrat. Whereas, in fact, we have him quoted as saying things like, I will leap joyfully into my grave knowing that I'm responsible for the disposal of five million or whatever his, the figure he had, and that I have it not on my conscience, but you know, whatever the reverse of a conscience is, that this is a source of strength for him. But um, they were banal types, but once they started killing, they weren't banal anymore. The chemical conglomerate IG Farben has a strong presence in your novel, though very much in the background. What was your interest in that? Well, it, I was astonished to find out that IG Farben, world-famous conglomerate, had its own concentration camp in Auschwitz, KL3, because it was to house the workforce of the Buna Wacker. Now, Buna was synthetic rubber, and there was a, the biggest and most advanced plant in Europe was established in the Auschwitz area, the zone of interest, which was the greater area of Auschwitz. And uh, when it was going to be fully online, this one factory would consume more electricity than Berlin. That was the scale of it. And uh, they were making synthetic rubber, which is vitally necessary for making war. You can't do it without rubber any more than you can do it without ball bearings. Synthetic rubber and synthetic fuel. And if they had achieved that, then they would have had no need of the Romanian oil fields, etc. They would have won autarky. They would have been self-sufficient and hugely strengthened by that. Now, my, my main protagonist, you could certainly call him the hero of this novel, works at Buna. He goes from a sort of passive sabotage to active sabotage to summarize brutally in the name of love because he's in love with the commandant's wife. So Buna's is a, a vital part of the story as well as being incredibly shocking and uh, dozens of Farben executives got quite light sentences for the crimes of slavery, spoliation and mass murder. 30,000 Jews died in the Buna work here. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think one could still be shocked by what took place there, but you, you quote from a letter from Farben's subsidiary, the pharmaceutical company Bayer, about the purchase of women for experiments. Yes, and it says, uh, unfortunately, they all died during the experiment, so we'd like another batch of 150 women, I think it was. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this letter exists. Um, very shocking. Were, were there things that surprised you in your, in your research? I was, uh, I was very surprised by how money-grubbing it was. Amazing, amazing, you know, it's full headlight hypocrisy when that was the main crime of the Jews was that they were acquisitive. But they were outdone by the Germans. The Jews didn't take the Aryans' gold from their teeth as the Germans did. Uh, I was very surprised by how system-wide that was. You know, it begins with a boycott, then confiscations, then Aryanization of businesses. The thoroughness, the German thoroughness of that was shocking. Another thing I found very shocking was the whole other universe of suffering that were the Polish ghettos, how exquisitely horrible they made life for the Jews of of the ghettos, a whole other little world of intense suffering that invariably ended in in the death camps. And this uh, horrible, ironic twist that, for instance, after Kristallnacht and and all these synagogues were destroyed, the Jews had to pay for the cleanup. That's right, yes. And they were were having to pay for their own uh, extermination. I was shattered when I read that... uh, they often paid their own way to Auschwitz via the Jewish councils, usually. And the standard fare was so many pfennigs per kilometer, third-class fare, and they were one-way tickets and free for those under 12. The perfection of moral squalor is striking. The zone of interest is largely written from the perspective of two German officers. Uh, we, we see their anxieties about the war, their, their personal lives, how they respond to the Holocaust. Why did you want to write this from the German point of view? Well, it's, it's not entirely from the German point of view. There's a third narrator whose chapters are shorter, who's um, a Polish Jew in the Sonderkommando, and these were the undertakers of the Holocaust. Men degraded beyond anything you can imagine. They were the ones who sheared the hair and and removed the fillings and uh, ground the bones, etc., etc. So it's, it's not wholly German. Also, my main narrator, Thompson, who works at the Buna factory, is uh, committed to losing the war. He's someone who, who is never deluded by this rush of power that turned the heads of all the other Germans. The defeat of France in 1940, I think the Holocaust wouldn't have taken place without that because no one could deny Hitler anything after that miraculous victory. And the power surge that Germany had been looking for ever since Bismarck, there it was. And uh, power corrupts, that's not a metaphor, that's a, a reality. But my main narrator is is a voice, I think, that anyone can recognize. This is the voice of reason. It takes a while for you to see his true colors, but um, he is the moral counterweight to Dahl. You've described the Holocaust as a very thorough Germanic exploration of evil. Was there something about it that made it particularly German? Um, just that, you know, when you decide to do it, you 
do it in the most literalist way possible, leaving no stone unturned because it might have something evil under it that will be of use to you. I think the, the sort of assiduity of the whole thing is German. Uh, when I was last in Germany, I was very impressed by the fact that young people are eager to talk about it, not just willing, but eager. And when you compare that with France, that hasn't barely made one baby step of recognition of its guilt in those years, I was very impressed by Germany. They've done all the sort of squirming in the 70s and 80s when they tried to contextualize it, as they say, try to historicize it, relativize it, saying that, well, the, the Allied bombing of Germany was just as hideous. And they stopped doing that. They accept the exceptionalism now. When we talked a while back, you, you, you said you thought that comedy was the only form left for novels, that tragedy, satire, and romance weren't going to work anymore. How does that fit a novel like The Zone of Interest? Well, I would go further than that and say that comedy has always been the only form. Uh, that might sound odd, but you go through the English novelists, they're all, anyone who's any good is funny, Nabokov said. Uh, same with, with the Americans. I mean, there are some are more solemn than others. But all the Russians are funny, including Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Gogol. Dostoevsky? Yes. It's very <laughs> funny. The double is a scream. Oh, yeah. So I would, you know, expand it. I think... Um, so all my adolescent angst was misplaced and uh, reading diary from the underground and all that. <laughs> um, no, but it's all very funny. I mean, I, he is a very funny writer. He has this reputation for, you know brooding gloom, but it's he's very funny. You know, there's a reason why comedy... By the way, let's expand the, the category to include high seriousness as well. But there's a reason why all good writers are funny, and that's because life is funny. Now, in the West, certainly, our great experiment with the opposite of comedy, which is, which is gloom and humorlessness and uh, pain, was after the Second World War, where quite understandably there was slogans like no poetry after Auschwitz were common and untrue. There was poetry during Auschwitz, Paul Ceylon. But then it was, you know, Beckett et al., where the curtain opens and there is a naked hermit on a cracked toilet on an otherwise deserted stage, that sort of stuff. It was just, a, I think, a complete wrong turning and utterly against the spirit of what literature is. So, so the, the comedy in, in the zone of interest, it, it, it percolates through Dahl's vocabulary, the, the commandant and, and the way he talk, thinks about, reflects on women. and Because and, uh, it's such a, a dire environment. And Well, I, I wanted to write about Dahl with, with contempt and I wanted to ridicule him. You know, as well as being disgusting and evil and all the rest of it, the Nazi project was incredibly stupid and incredibly ridiculous. And I don't, didn't want to exclude those anathemas from my book. But let's, let's be clear about comedy. When people think of laughter, they think that it's all high spirits. Laughter is very, very um, nuanced and complicated. There, there are some very fierce emotions included in laughter. It's not just frivolous giggling. It's a deep part of us. So 
I would say satire more than comedy in my dealings with Dole. Uh, satire being militant irony. Militant in, the, in, the, in its desire? For... To, to destroy and uh, to excoriate, to leave nothing, you know, to demolish. That's what the satire is there for. Martin Amos in New York in 2014. He died last May. He was 73. The Zone of Interest is available in paperback from Vintage Canada. Its adaptation for the screen by British filmmaker Jonathan Glazer is nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. The winners will be announced March 10th. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. When discussing his novels about the Holocaust, Martin Amos often talked about the great debt he owed to the Italian Jewish chemist and Holocaust survivor, Primo Levi, who was one of the most respected and widely read writers of the 20th century. Levy's memoir of his experience at the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz, If This Is a Man, is iconic, powerful not only for bearing witness, but for his remarkable talent as a writer. Similarly, The Truce, his account of his circuitous journey home, is the work of a brilliant storyteller. His later book, The Periodic Table, an eccentric memoir full of wit and originality, merging science and art with each chapter named for a chemical element, it was named by the Royal Institution of Great Britain as the greatest science book ever written, beating out even Charles Darwin. In Levy's hometown of Turin in northern Italy, there's a Piazza Primo Levi in his honor. Naples has a street named after him that runs parallel to the sea. In 2011, a constellation halfway between Mars and Jupiter was officially named Primo Levi. As his biographer Ian Thompson put it, 100 years on from his birth, to say that Levy is a star is a literal truth. What I've been struck by in looking back on his life and work is how deeply admired he is by so many different writers, such as Jhumpa Lahiri, Alexander Hemon, Toni Morrison, Philip Roth, Edmund Duvall, Siddhartha Mukherjee, the list goes on. Primo Levi was born in Turin in 1919 to middle-class assimilated Jewish parents. His father was an engineer who loved books. He had the pockets of his jackets designed especially to accommodate them. Primo did well in school, with his classmates cheering him on with Primo Levi Primo when he came top of the class. He graduated with honors in chemistry, but it was at a time when Italian fascism was infected with Nazi racial laws and war had begun. He managed to find work as a chemist, but then joined the resistance. He was arrested by Italian forces and sent to a prison camp near Modena. A month later, it was taken over by the Germans, and in February 1944, Primo Levi and about 650 other Jewish inmates were sent to Auschwitz. Barely 20 survived. After the war, Levy worked as a professional chemist in a paint factory for 30 years, while at the same time writing. His books include 
if not now, when, and The Drowned and the Saved. In 1987, when he was 68, he fell from the stairwell of the third-floor apartment where he'd lived all his life, an apparent suicide. More than 35 years later, Primo Levi continues to be both a compelling figure and singularly powerful writer. In 2015, a three-volume, 3,000-page complete works was published in English. In 2019, to mark the centenary of his birth, I invited Martin Amos, along with Levy's biographer, Ian Thompson, to talk about his life and legacy. Ian Thompson was in London, England, and Martin Amos at his home in Brooklyn, New York, when we spoke. Just a note, our conversation includes some discussion of suicide. Primo Levi is, is an important writer, not just for, for scholars of the Holocaust or, or general readers, but in particular, it seems, for other writers as well. Why do you think that is, Martin? Well, Saul Bellow was a, a great admirer of Primo Levi, and uh, Bellow always used to say that, that he was exemplary for the fact that all his sentences had the right number of words. There was never one too many or one too few. Um, and I think he, he is a model in that respect. Not a word wasted. Yes, I, ag- I agree, absolutely. And I think we can bring chemistry in here, perhaps, because from chemistry, which is very much a science of measuring and qualitative analysis, uh, Primo Levi derived a kind of cult, almost, of a personal cult of concision and precision in his own writing, which he sort of saw in some ways a sort of sovereign politeness towards the reader, I think. So he was absolutely a master prose writer in Italian. There's no writer from the 20th century in Italy who has, in some ways, apart from Italo Calvino, perhaps, approached the sort of extreme uh, purity and transparency of his writing. Martin Amos, the Holocaust has been a subject of ongoing interest to you, and you've described Primo Levi as, as the visionary of the Holocaust, its, its presiding spirit and the most perceptive of all writers on the subject. How so? Well, there's that marvelous bit in, if this is a man early on when he's shaved and uh, hosed down and given random rags to wear, and he's in a hut with uh, a couple of dozen other prisoners, and they're all dying of thirst, a four-day thirst and he sees a fine icicle outside the window, which is open, and he reaches out to snap it off and uh, is harshly uh, forbidden by a guard to do that. And he says innocently, he's just arrived in Auschwitz, he says, uh, why? And uh, the guard said, here is kein Warum. Here there is no why. Um, and that, that could be the presiding phrase over Primo Levi's whole inquiry into the Holocaust, that there was no real why. And he isn't foreclosing inquiry, he's giving you a way in. That's what I felt very strongly. It's interesting in in terms of saying that the, the inquiry is still open because there were various points where Primo Levi would say that he wanted to understand, and, and in, in 1961, when if this is a man was translated into German, he agonized over the foreword to the book, and uh, the words he chose were, I am alive and I would like to understand you in order to judge you. Yes, well, you, um, I, we're all in the position of judging without, without truly understanding. 
I was reflecting on the on the title of the book, If This Is a Man, um, which comes from a poem Levy wrote while he was composing the book, Psalm, and in describing the conditions of the inmates of Auschwitz, the poem asks the reader to consider if this is a man. But of course, it's in some ways an extraordinarily ambivalent choice of title because the Nazis, as well as their prisoners, had been dehumanized by their work in the camp. And Levy, by including both the aggressor and the victim, if you like, in the title, I think reinforces the book's extraordinary moral authority and objectivity. Just to establish uh, his background, Primo Levi grew up in Turin in the Piedmont region of northwest Italy in a family that was Jewish but deeply assimilated into Italian culture, part of an old minority that had come originally from, from Spain and Provence. Apart from his experiences uh, during the war, he lived in the same family home, the same apartment all of his life. Ian, you interviewed Primo Levi at his home shortly before he died. Can you describe that meeting? Yes, I remember it was a summer's afternoon in July 1986, I think, and Primo Levi was in shirt sleeves for our appointment. And the tattoo 174517 was clearly visible on his left forearm. Um, And he told me of this tattoo that it was a typical German talent, he said, for classification. And this very tart, slightly uh, dark irony, I think, that... Uh, Levy expressed here was characteristic of the man and the writer. He was then, I think, almost 68 years old, but he still had a sprightliness about him. I was very mindful of Levy's stature as a national monument in Italy. I was about 24 and very nervous of meeting him. Um, I remember that throughout the interview, he smoked these Alaska brand menthol cigarettes, which sort of slightly surprised me. And I also remember that suspended above a glass-fronted bookcase was these extraordinary creatures. There was an owl, a penguin, and a giant butterfly that um, Levy had modelled himself out of industrial copper wire. For 30 years or so, he had been the manager of a not just a paint but a varnish factory outside Turin. And the only other ornament that I can remember anyway in the room um, was a sketch of a half-destroyed... Uh, wire fence, um, Auschwitz. In your biography, you point out the fact that he would frequently wear short sleeve shirts. Just what what did that mean for him? Well, I, I, he could have had the uh, tattoo surgically removed, but it was part of his lifelong project to bear witness to this instance of infamy that he had lived through. Uh, and he bore witness in many different ways, not just simply by exposing the tattoo on his left forearm, but by, for example, uh, going to schools and talking to school children about what he'd been through in Auschwitz. And by talking to them, he made them in turn witnesses themselves and so continued this sort of project that he was always very fearful would one day uh, peter out with the sort of um, decay of memory. Primo Levi had a gift for portraying friendship in his work, but also, as a number of writers have pointed out, there's a sense in which his words can befriend you, that that in reading him, you you feel a personal connection to him. Uh, Martin, w- would you agree? Absolutely. Very intimate. He certainly, he offers his hand in friendship 
but it's of a diffidence, a charming diffidence at the same time. What kind of personality do you think comes through in Primo Levi's writing? I mean, naturally, the, the different books have a different tone, but what, what sense of the man comes through? Well, very witty. I mean, he's, he's, the truth is, you know, really comic, which is why I revere it so much. And uh, elsewhere, I mean, the wit is omnipresent, and it's nothing raucous in it, but it's just part of his delicacy and his discrimination. There's uh, no greater proof that a sense of humor is, is a sign of intelligence. Yes, I agree. And there's another quality, I think, particularly in Primo Levi's career as a journalist. He, let's not forget, he was an incredibly prolific journalist for the uh, Turin newspaper La Stampa. He became its star kind of contributor in the 60s and 70s. And there's a kind of agreeable courtesy, I think, with which he uh, makes a range, a vast range of subjects accessible to the to the layman. Uh, he was a man of extraordinary, almost Renaissance-like interests and breadth of sort of curiosity. I think in some ways curiosity was Primo Levi's true muse, and this was a faculty in some way that helped him survive Auschwitz too. Chemistry was Primo Levi's first and, and lifelong career. What attracted him to chemistry? What, what made it a good fit for him? Well, I think Primo Levi very explicitly in the periodic table, his great 1975 memoir, uh, absolutely immaculate amalgam of science and, and literature, um, he talks there about the pure, clean smell of chemistry in sort of distinction to the cloudy rhetoric of fascism with its harping <laughs> constantly on the spirit. So here with chemistry, you had a very uh, practical sort of laboratory-based discipline which Levi saw, I think, is a sort of an absolute um, sort of mirror opposite of what the fascist regime was sort of propounding day in, day out in Italy. To, to believe in, in matter rather than spirit. It's an interesting distinction. Yeah. Ian, you've alluded to this, but how, how was his scientific approach helpful to him in, in the camp? Well, at a certain point in his internment at Auschwitz, he was selected to be part of uh, a chemical commando, as it was called, and he was then sent to Wunder Monowitz Auschwitz III, where they were uh, manufacturing or trying to manufacture synthetic rubber for the war effort. And Levy was then allowed a brief respite from the cold and the appalling hunger in the laboratory. And so in some ways, he owed his life to his profession of chemistry. You know, of course, in his day, also, chemistry was very much a German science. A lot of the books that he had used at university in Turin in the chemistry faculty were translations from the German, or actually still in German. Uh, and Primo Levi uh, learned the language of his persecutors unwittingly as a teenager at university, and it served him very well, of course, later on at Auschwitz, where if you didn't understand the orders, which were invariably in German, um, you were dead. We, we have a clip where he's talking about that. It's from an interview recorded in 1972. I was a chemist, and this was to, to be a chemical factory, but it was still being built. Until July, the Germans did not need chemists for their laboratories. But in July, 
we were told if somebody among us was a chemist to apply. Many applied, chemists and not chemists, of course. Everybody who thought to be able to do the trick applied as a chemist. In the month of July, 44, we were examined very seriously by a German chemist and among about 80 people, we were chosen in three, three of us, and I was one of the three. I can say I learned German for this purpose. I understood very clearly that it was a way of escape to be pulled away from unskilled labor. It was very, extremely painful for me. I'm not very strong. And I had to carry logs to dig earth, to uh, pull wagons, to everything. Every, everything is needed in a, in a factory in construction. At that time, I had lost almost completely any hope for survival. That's the Italian-Jewish writer Primo Levi describing his experience at Auschwitz. Martin, your novel, The Zone of Interest, is set in part at the IG Farben rubber plant at Auschwitz. What do you imagine when you think of Primo Levi working in that environment? Well, as he hinted in that clip, to get a job that was uh, in Auschwitz that kept you warm and kept you dry and kept you fed was... uh, you know, stupendous achievement and would lengthen your life, if not save it. But I imagine he was very torn. Um, Was he actually part of the effort to create synthetic rubber? Because they never did create any of that. And I imagine him... I mean, he he says in, in the book that it was a joy to have serious work to do rather than digging a hole and then filling it up again, which was just another form of torture. But he must also have been deeply opposed to to actually succeeding in or easing the way towards synthetic rubber. So it placed him in a in a sort of crucifying position. But do you think there was any self sabotage given that the, no synthetic rubber was actually produced? Well, I think, yes, there was. And uh, the trick was to interfere with a bit of equipment so that it it broke down later when it was out of your hands. And I just don't know how involved he might have been with that. Well, I think in several interviews, Prima Levi does talk about small acts of uh, sabotage, confounding samples in the laboratory, breaking test tubes, nothing beyond that. I mean, it's extremely dangerous to be even seen holding a pencil with a piece of paper in case you were taking some sort of notes. Um, But it must have bolstered his spirit no end to think that in some small way he was undermining the German uh, war effort here. Uh, He wasn't then aware of this dreadful complicity between uh, German industry and the death camps, companies like Bayer, Basf, Siemens, Pelican, who made the ink to tattoo the prisoners with, uh, were all involved with the giant sort of laboratory experiment to transform the substance of mankind, which uh, was part of the Hitlerite project 
in its extermination of European Jewry. One of the questions that continually comes up about Primo Levi is, would he have become a writer without Auschwitz? And, and he himself gave different responses at different times. What do you think? Um, well, the force of the talent is so great, mm-hmm. and the uh, purity of the talent is so great that I think he, I it's difficult to imagine him never trying his hand at it. What haunts me about him very much is uh, the manner of his death. There's that uh, unforgettable scene at the end of If This Is a Man when he and, I think, one other comrade are managing to survive this last winter. And uh, they see in the distance four Russian horsemen, young men, peasant soldiers on horseback, come very slowly into the camp and uh, he said there was no there was no joy in in seeing them there was shame and uh, they were staring out at this uh, desolate scene with all its corpses and uh, sort of a smell of horror and they felt shame on Primo Levi's behalf and Imagine the weight of that emotion, that shame, when you were, you know, the victim par excellence. But I always liked, I always used to say to myself that um, from the first moment I heard about his death was that it was, there was something of self-assertion in it, the way you're saying, um, my life is mine and mine alone to take. So it, it does sort of, it rounds the circle in some way, but um, it also reminds you just how much suffering he, he had to assimilate and that you can't do that without risk to your psyche. Yes, I, I completely agree. From what we know about Primo Levi towards the end of his life, he was depressed and weighed down by a number of domestic um, problems. He was working on a collection of imaginary letters from a scientist to a a wealthy uh, patron in Turin, and these letters explain various scientific and chemical phenomena. But the book was going badly. Uh, He was troubled by all sorts of other matters, too. Almost the last newspaper article he wrote for La Stampa in Turin was called The Black Hole of Auschwitz, in which he bitterly indicted this new generation of German historians uh, like Ernst Nolte, who contended that the Nazi genocide was not a, a unique instance of human infamy, but just one link in a chain reaction that started with the Soviet gulag and went on to Vietnam and beyond. Uh, I think Levy was clearly very horrified by this move to diminish what he saw as man's defining it was atrocity. Called, um, the, the uh, relativization of the yeah of the yeah. holocaust and the, yeah. the, 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 the historians quarrel uh, that's right in the that was in the uh, around the time of his death wasn't it was it not mm, absolutely um, yes but you know whether the depression that enveloped primo levi in his final months was compounded in any way by his uh, terrible past can only be speculation uh, you know the books remain and I think it's a very bad mistake that's often made is to confuse the writer with the books. Primo Levi was a man who went through long periods of irrational 
uh, depressions, as he called them, um, whereas his books give this counter-image of um, extreme lucidity and attempts to explain rationally man's inhumanity to man. But in private, Prima Levi was a very different man to how the books might give an impression of the man. Well, he himself said in connection to the death of the Italian writer Cesare Pavese that every suicide is mysterious. And do you think there's any credence to the idea that it wasn't a suicide, that it was an accident? Personally, I don't. I mean, um, no. The doctor's report, uh, who was on site at the scene of the the, the, the death, um, records it as precipitazione dall'alto. Uh, you know, he threw himself from a high place. I will translate as, um, you know, death was instantaneous. It didn't allow any room for any hesitations or change of thought. He described himself as both a witness and storyteller. What did he see as, as the difference? Well, I think this word witness, Levy always took as rather a backhand sort of compliment in Italy. The word witness, testimone, kind of hung round Levy's neck like a kind of albatross, really. He kind of grew to really resent it, I think. He regarded himself, rightly so, as a, as a writer, first and foremost. And the, the, the witness kind of image that Primo Levi had, I think, really, if we look at him only through that sort of prism, it does him a great disservice, a great injustice, because he was, as well as a witness, a very great writer. We, we've been talking about the moral impact of, of some of his writing, but I'd like to go over that a little bit more, because it seems that it's moral, his moral stance is what really sets him apart as a writer. Well, moral penetration. I mean, the, the four books, in my view, there's uh, If This Is a Man, The Truce, The Drowned and the Saved is perhaps the, the philosophically at the center of his thoughts about Auschwitz and Moments of Reprieve that, um, again, with this marvelous resilience, he, um, he concentrates on those happier days uh, spent at Auschwitz. But you wouldn't call it the force of condemnation, just um, utterly human, utterly candid, and dismayed often. It's a, it's a journey of discovery. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't start to write about the Holocaust with a, a great fuel tank of indignation, again, tentative and exploratory. Yes, I agree. And you know, one thing I think a lot of readers have remarked, um, not so much with The Drowned and the Safe, but with his first book, If This Is a Man, is that it has flashes of quiet humor and its affirmation of human dignity instills a kind of almost paradoxical joy in the reader. So Levy doesn't ever dwell on the mechanics of mass murder, but on, on, on what remained of the human face in the camp. Um, uh, you know, he obviously didn't describe the the, the, the gas chambers, the, the assembly line uh, murder of, of people because he didn't see any of it and he limited to himself like a true scientist to what he saw and heard and that to stray beyond this morally would have been indefensible, i.e. he would have started to have made things up. And I think the perhaps the part of the relevance of the of his training as a chemist and his uh, praxis as a, as a chemist is that it's something that all writers are trying to do. 
which is seeing humanity as if for the first time, seeing everything as if for the first time. And that nourishes the the priceless naivety of the imagination and, and does make you see things afresh. Martin Amos, Ian Thompson, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Ian Thompson in London and Martin Amos in Brooklyn in 2019. Ian Thompson is the author of the award-winning biography Primo Levi, A Life. Martin Amos is the author of Time's Arrow and The Zone of Interest. He died last May. He was 73. The complete works of Primo Levi, edited by Anne Goldstein and with an introduction by Toni Morrison, is available from LiveWrite. Writers and Company was produced this week by Mary Stinson and senior producer Sandra Rabinovich, with thanks to Katie Swales and Sarah Cooper. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Catherine Lacey, named one of Granta Magazine's Best Young American Novelists. Her book, Pew, imagines a character without race or gender. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.